My name is Frans de Waal. I'm a primatologist and biologist, uh, and I, I live in um, Stone Mountain, Georgia. But at the moment, we have a lot of uh, desirable stuff to come, I suppose. Um, at the moment, we, we are really in trouble. You know, as a species, we have been very arrogant, and we have religions and philosophy which tell us that we are different from all other animals and different from nature, and we are the boss in the world, basically. And, and now we are suddenly in a situation where we're not the boss in the world, and we know that a small virus that affects a small percentage of people can bring down the whole economy. Uh, and so um, we live in an interesting time, I think, where, where we are beginning to reflect more than we used to on our place in nature and, and how we relate to the natural world. Uh, and, and I think our philosophies have generally been extremely flawed because they have generally emphasized the difference. Humans are, humans are special, humans are different. Hello and welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Lernian, and I've written several books about orcas, but my next book due out this fall is Sharks Forever, the history and mystery of the ocean's perfect predator. And I am so thrilled to finally be releasing this interview with someone I've mentioned in all of my recent books, best-selling author, primatologist, and eco-philosopher Franz de Waal. Now, primatology, primates, apes, chimps, bonobos, pretty darn cool, but not my usual focus for Scanna since none of them spent a lot of time hanging out in the ocean. So why do I feature an ape expert in all my recent books about marine life? Because Franz de Waal coined a term that I believe is essential for saving all species, anthropodenial. As always, we can only share these stories on Scanna because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what you're listening to and want to hear more interviews with people who are making waves around the world, please support us at patreon.com. Our Patreon patrons do get all sorts of cool perks, including sneak previews of Sharks Forever. And now, Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug and Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are, on Apes, Orcas, and Anthropodenial. So thank you so much for doing this. I became fascinated by your work when I learned the term anthropodenial. Can you please tell me, can you, can you please explain that term, but also can you please share that, say the term in the explanation? Yeah, so the explanation is that um, since I work on animal cognition and animal emotions, the, the, the thing that is most often thrown at you as, as a protest is anthropomorphism. People say, don't be anthropomorphic. So you say, for example, my dog is jealous. They say, don't be anthropomorphic. You say, chimpanzees can plan and for the future. We have actually experiments demonstrating that. 
They say, don't be anthropomorphic, don't use that kind of terminology. So anything that relates to an inner life, such as consciousness and feelings and thinking is taboo in, in the traditional sense uh, of animal behavior. And anthropomorphism is the term that is being used to kill you and say, don't do that. Now, I got so fed up by the term that I invented an, an anti-term, which is anthropodenial. I said, well, you are an anthropodenial. You're denying the connection between humans and animals. You're thinking that the jealousy of a dog must be something else than the jealousy of a human, but maybe it's the same thing. And so I use that term to basically emphasize that, are, that we are animals and that many of the inner processes are very similar. And, and, and basically, you know, a lot of the sciences, if you look at philosophy, uh, you look at anthropology, at psychology, a lot of the sciences are in anthropodenial. Uh, psychology is changing, fortunately. The psychologists are not as extreme anymore as they used to be. But there's many people who believe that humans are not animals. Humans are something else. I don't know what they are, but something else than animals. I was, uh, I was so taken by the term that I figured out a way to include it in my children's book about orcas, where I okay. broke down every aspect of the word so that I could actually share it. So it's probably mm -hmm. the longest word that's, that's snuck into a children's book in a long time. So, mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting, when I started interviewing orca researchers, one of the first conversations I had was one of them saying, I'm done apologizing for anthropomorphizing. I don't know what else to compare them to besides us. Yeah, yeah. You know, their, their, their brains are so large, their, their emotions are, you know, their lives are complex. What am I supposed to compare them to? Well, it's interesting because with the primates, of course, it's very easy. Uh, if you work with chimpanzees like me, it's our closest relative. Obviously, we need to anthropomorphize them to death, basically, because they have the same facial expressions, the same body, the same brain. Everything is basically the same. We are primates. We're very closely related to them. So, and, and they're called anthropoid primates for a reason. They're human-like. That's what the term means. Uh, in in humans, the human science, for example, Paul Ekman, who's a specialist in facial expressions, made these six basic emotions. Humans have six basic emotions, meaning they are universal, and we share them with animals. I think we share all emotions with animals, but he, he had six of them. And they were based on facial expressions of humans, that facial expressions that we recognize all over the world um, and that are interpreted all over the world in the same way. But it's based on, based on fa facial expressions. And so basically an animal that doesn't have facial expressions like a dolphin or an orca would not fall under the six basic emotions. Th that's the interesting part is we are so human centric that we, we can deal with facial expressions, but we cannot deal with an elephant who also has very, an elephant does a, a lot of things with his trunk and the ears, but the face is not very mobile, you know? You know, it was interesting because I don't come from a science background. And, you know, I, I came at this out of being a storyteller and a journalist. And I was fascinated by these taboos. And I mean, some of the things that, that really shocked me in your work, this idea of animals as machines. Yeah. And, and I don't even grasp where that comes from. Like when I was working on my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, what I was trying to do, I thought that a scientist would tell me, why are we considered the top of the yeah. food chain? Can you, and I was looking for scientific explanations and philosophical explanations, and I 
kept speaking to scientists and I'm going, well, explain this to me. And it, there didn't ever seem to be an explanation no. that may, it just was like, well, we just are. It's, it, Sometimes we even consider the top of the organic world or something. Why? That's, that's the sort of terminology that people use or anthropologists they use to call us unique and special and superior. Now they call us successful. I, I'm not even sure that we are a very successful species, but that's how they see us nowadays. Yeah, so we, we always have to be on the top. An interesting story on that is that uh, five years ago, uh, scientists said, why don't we just not look at brain size? We're just going to count the number of neurons in the brain, and that's going to be our measure of how smart a species is. And um, they were convinced, of course, that humans would have the most neurons in the brain. We have a lot. We have, I think, three, three billion or whatever it is. Um, so uh, they, they started counting neurons, and they found in that process that the elephant has three times more neurons in the brain than we do. And, and since that time, they have abandoned the whole project because the neuron counting didn't go the way they wanted it to go. And, and that's how the human sciences usually operate. Humans have to come out on top somehow. Yeah. Well, I gather it was brain size. And then uh, it turned out that, you know, cetaceans had bigger brains. And then it was the number of cortical folds. And, yeah. you know. You can't win. You can't win. No. <laughs> but like it seems like what happens is scientists keep setting up these bars and yeah. then animals keep breaking them yeah 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 and i mean i read that at one point it was tool use and we now know that you know so the, so the history the history on that is interesting is that in the 1950s there was an anthropologist who wrote uh, a book it was called man the toolmaker and he argued that yes there are animals who use tools, but we make our own tools, and that makes us special. And so everyone was very happy with it until, of course, it was discovered, both in the field and in captivity, that uh, apes can make tools. They, they, they modify things to make them better suited as tools. And then now recently, we found that parrots do the same thing and crows do the same thing. But anyway, man, the toolmaker was for a while, maybe for a decade, was, was the argument, and, and it fell apart. And, and I've in my lifetime seen maybe 25 of these arguments, and they've always fallen apart. They're very hard to maintain. What, is, what do you think is at the root of fighting for human exceptionalism like yeah. this? That, that, that is, you know, we, our ego is tied up with that, and, and we have to be special. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, we are a very smart primate, that's absolutely true. And, um, and we have one capacity that I think is unique, which is the language capacity. I think language is really special. But um, in other ways, like socio-emotionally, our psychology, I think is very much a primate psychology. It's not particularly different. Uh, and it's not particularly better, I think. But uh, that's, um, people always want to be special. Yeah. Well. When when we're getting into language, this is another thing that has fascinated me. I I feel like scientists go into these bizarre linguistic contortions to avoid attributing human emotions to animals. I've I've heard you talk about oh god, 
the, the weird term that they've come up with, yeah. laughter. Can you talk a little bit about using terminology to avoid, to basically duck the idea of animals having emotions? Yeah, so, so one, one of my earliest discoveries as a primatologist was that, that chimpanzees embrace and kiss each other after a fight. And uh, I called it reconciliation. And people said, no, 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 you cannot use this terminology. The kiss you have to call mouse-to-mouse -mouse contact. And the reconciliation you have to call post-conflict contact. So they wanted me to use a very sort of abstract terminology that doesn't relate to anything to avoid the connection with human behavior. And I've always felt if related species show similar behavior under similar circumstances, you have to use the same terminology because the psychology behind it is probably similar too. And, and so that is my rule of thumb, uh, which is really a, a Darwinian rule of thumb. But in psychology, the history is very different. The history of psychology, American psychology especially, is Skinner, Skinnerians. And B.F. Skinner, he looked at animals like little machines. They can be programmed, which he calls conditioning. You can reward them or punish them, and that's how all behavior comes about. And as soon as you deviate from that view, you're gonna be anthropomorphic, you're gonna be chided for not being, you're gonna be called romantic, or you're not a scientist anymore, as soon as you deviate from that view. And the good thing that has happened over the last 25 years is that there's a younger generation of scientists who doesn't follow these rules anymore. They, they don't, they, they still know how, how Skinnerian conditioning works and they're interested in it and, and it's not wrong as an idea, but they have gone beyond it and they are not constrained by it anymore. And so as a result, we now talk openly about planning in animals and uh, uh, metacognition, consciousness. We, we talk about all these things that were taboo 25 years ago. Can you, one of the terms that you came, that uh, I read you talking about was the one that came, they came up with to avoid using the word laughter. Uh -huh. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because well, that, if, if you take a young chimp, a baby chimp, like two years, three years old, and you put them on your lap and you, you tickle them, you tickle them under the armpits, the same, same as human babies, basically, same spots they have, they produce uh, a laugh-like sound. It goes like, <laughs> and uh, it's a little bit hoarser than that. And it's not very loud. It, it's softer than the human laugh, but the facial expression is very similar too. And we usually, we call it laughter, but, but people would say, no, no, you have to call that vocalized panting. It, it is of course a panting sound because human laughter is also panting. The reason you, you lose your breath when you're laughing is because you exhale more than you inhale in the panting, the vocalized panting that you do. And so um, same thing happens with the chimps and, and the chimps are very similar also in their reactions. They, they're just like kids, is they, they try to push you away. They want you to stop the tickling, but then when you stop, they want you to come back and do it again. And so they have this ambivalency that children also have to tickling. I don't know how much you followed the story of the orca out here, Tahlequah, who was carrying her dead daughter for 17 days. And I saw people go into, again, linguistic contortions to avoid using the term grief. I, see. Uh, yeah, I, know, I know that case because I think it was at the orcas 
the islands of the Orcas uh, uh, around that time. And, and I spoke with some of the biologists who worked with her. And uh, I didn't know she had a name. I think she had a number at that, at that point, something, J something. J35, uh, which is something I've, I've had debates with scientists here about. about why, the why, why, a, why a number? We, we have given up in primatology long ago to go with numbers because the numbers become names. If I call you, if I call you number 12, very soon 12 will be your name. And I will say, well, 12 told me, um, and he thinks that he is something, but uh, he is not. And so the, the number becomes very soon like a name. So you don't really solve any issues with it. I've actually had, uh, this has been something I've been speaking about in on the West Coast a lot, is why are we using these numbers? We've given them all names and they're using the numbers to create the distance, uh -huh. right? Yeah. And I gave a talk to a bunch of scientists, which was very scary not being a scientist, that basically talked about, you had the entire world watching this story. And, you know, they wanted to hear about Tahlequah and her dead daughter and her grief. And you talked about J35 and her neonate. Uh -huh. and, I, I, <laughs> and I'm like, you did everything possible to remove emotion from a story the world was watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't. And one of the things that really hit me, and I saw like, Time Magazine uses, the orca appeared to be grieving. And I'm going, really? because I've been to funerals where people have appeared to be grieving and you know, they're really happy that that person's in the box. I didn't think this orca was faking her grief. So can you talk a little bit about animals and grief and, and Tahlequah and grief? Well, in, in, the, in the orca, it's probably harder to see uh, the emotional expression. In, in the chimpanzees, of course, we, this is quite common that a chimpanzee loses her baby. Uh, the baby dies. She carries it around for a month sometimes till it completely mummified, and and it's surrounded by f by by flies and all of this. Uh, so um, th this is a very long process. And in those cases, I've seen chimpanzee females uh, cry. So they um, they scream and they cry and they don't eat for a couple of days themselves. They don't want to eat. Uh, they, they really look enormously depressed. So since the, since the expressions of a chimpanzee are so similar to ours, we can see these emotions more clearly. But I think all animals that have attachments, and that's true for all the mammals basically, all animals that have attachments can also grieve because then, then when you lose that individual, if it's a friend or a partner or a child, you lose that individual, you're going to ha have a very strong response to that because you're used to having an individual around. So all animals who have attachments, and it's also for, of course, pair bonding in birds. We know very well, I've personally had birds, uh, one bird who died after the partner disappeared. So yeah, these things happen. And I think uh, grieving is a very good description of that process. Uh, depression is basically a very strong depression. Uh, and, and we call it, in humans, we call it grieving. Can you talk a little bit more about numbers versus names? Because I'd love to be able to cite you on this. Well, there, there, was, there was a time in primatology where, where people were against names. The first, the first ones who recognized primates were the Japanese primatologists, who, uh, Kenji Imanishi, who would, who would go around in the 1960s, he would come to the US and give lectures and he say, my uh, my students, they can recognize a hundred monkeys. 
and we have all given them, he didn't give them names, they gave them numbers at the time. We've all given them numbers and they can recognize a hundred one of them. He was not believed. The, the American scientists said there's an impossibility to recognize a hundred monkeys. We now know very well that it can be done because we do it all the time, but, um, and, and you do it also with the orcas and the dolphins, you recognize them by their, their dorsal fins and so on. But at that time, people didn't believe him. So at that time, it was still numbers because he wanted to be careful, I suppose. Uh, but very soon, we primatologists, we realized that a number becomes a name. So, so we say number 12 is a jerk and number, number nine is so nice always to everyone. They, they become names to us. And so why, why would you use the numbers if you can also use names? And the, the, the opposition to names was that you humanize the animals too much. But I'm not against humanizing animals uh, and, or animalizing humans. And so I, I don't see the problem of that necessarily. But that was initially the complaint about it. It's been fascinating here because we've given all of these orcas numbers or names. Like I understand the value of the numbers in terms of tracking you know, who is from which pod and, you know, birth order. Yeah, num numbers can be convenient. I had, for example, in the primates, I had the habit of giving the children of a female all the same begin level. So you would have a female named Tomato and she would have a child called Till and a child called Tip or it, you would give the same starting letter, which makes it easier to track the matriline, for example. So yeah, numbers have sometimes an advantage because you systematize them more easily. But is there any reason for being phobic about names? No, I don't think so. I, I think, I think we, we want to individually recognize. We want to know the personality characteristics. So yes, a name helps with that. Now, I know I was, I was emailing with you when you were out on Orcas Island and you were doing your talks here. Did you end up seeing a whale? I don't think you did, but... No, I didn't see a whale. I, 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 saw, uh, I saw some seals, I believe. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? I've seen whales, but um, not orcas, but I've seen whales in Mexico. I, in Mexico, I, if I go there, I always try to do some whale watching, and then they see the humbugs. Yeah. Any interesting experiences with them? No, I'm, I'm not a, a whale expert, and so just seeing them come up and go down is, for me, is already a, a big event. But in terms of behavior, I haven't seen much, no. Now, I was, uh, I was listening to the audiobook version of your philosopher's talk where you had a whole bunch of, where three different philosophers were basically arguing with you. And there was something that you said right near the end of it that I just loved. Can you discuss survival of the kindest? <laughs> survival of the, yeah, usually they say survival of the fittest, of course. And, and, People confuse what the fittest is. They think the fittest must be the strongest uh, because we, we put it all in terms of struggle for survival. Uh, it's not always the strongest. Uh, you survive because you have better hearing or a better immune system. Now we, we live now through the virus crisis. So the immune system begins to count really. Uh, so it doesn't, you, you don't need to be the strongest. You need to just to be the best at surviving. And, uh, and survival, is often tied to cooperation. So survival is often tied to uh, how well you work with others, especially in species like, let's say, orcas and wolves and elephants and humans. We're very cooperative species who live in groups for a reason. And so if you're the kindest, 
uh, this can help your survival survival in the sense that um, if if you are aloof and you're not connected with others and you don't care about others and they never do something for you and you never do something for them you're basically in isolation and uh, you're not doing very well and so the, the kindest individuals the individuals who are most connected to others are the ones who often do the best and, and we have, actually have data on that in the primates now we have data that individuals who are socially well connected they do in generally they do better than others well i think everybody i've, I've ever heard interviewers talk to you about alpha males and it was it's been fascinating listening to you talk about how that kindness is part of being an alpha and your yeah. work being interpreted by say by thinking that alphas are just bullies yeah so the, the, there's a there's a business literature the, the business the man, management literature who say how to be an alpha male and, and what they basically describe is how to be a bully how to to outcompete everybody else, beat them over the head every day, let them feel every day that you have a better office and a better salary than they, uh, and, and you're gonna beat them up, and, and, and also you will attract a lot of women that way, uh, so it's a very good thing to be an alpha male. And, and that's how they, the view that they have, and the, the best alpha males that I've known in, in the chimpanzee world are individuals who, yes, they are dominant, they're often not physically dominant, in the sense that they may be the smallest male, if they are well connected, they can still be the alpha male. Uh, and so they are not necessarily bullies. They, they are individuals who keep the peace, they keep order, they interrupt fights between others, they are there to console others. Normally consolation, which is an act of empathy of distressed individuals, is done by females. Females do that more than males, but the alpha male is an exception. The alpha male does more than anybody else. And so the alpha male is an empathic figure. We live at the moment in a time without such an alpha male and, and we're noticing that. So an alpha male is an empathic figure and uh, that's the good leader. But we, we have also sometimes have bullies in, in chimpanzee communities. We sometimes have individuals who are like that and they don't always end very well because I, I think the, the community doesn't like that kind of males. And so there are also descriptions in the field of, of them getting killed. So that happens sometimes. Well, listening to you talk about that, I just kept thinking of when Bill Clinton was president and the line that I always remember from him is, I feel your pain. Yeah. And that, that's just, for whatever reason, that's the line I associate with him most. And that yeah. seemed to fit with the way you've described alphas. Yeah. So, so the alpha male is like that. The alpha, alpha female can also be like that. So in, in my last book, Mama's Last Hug, I described Mama, the alpha female of chimpanzees. So, so she, the female, the alpha female is never dominant or physically dominant over the males, but she was a very central figure in the community. And I suppose in the pods of Arcas, I suppose the alpha female is something very special too. And, um, the alpha female can also take take on that kind of role if if she's very highly respected which which mama was she can take on that role also well orca societies when i was reading on your work on bonobos and about how they're matriarchal orca societies are matriarchal yeah. and it, the eldest orca from all the pods seems to lead the super pods as well mm -hmm. so is there anything in terms of matriarchal studies that make them unique some that you've discovered well in the in the bonobos the females are collectively dominant 
So, so an individual female is not dominant over an individual male because the male is bigger and stronger. I don't know if that's true for orcas, but that's certainly true in bonobos. And so in the bonobos, the females are dominant over the males collectively. They, they have a very strong sisterhood, a very strong alliance, and, and the males just cannot compete with that. And so the, the females dominate the males. The alpha female, we, we know much less about bonobos than about chimpanzees. And so what is special about the alpha female and what she does to keep the group together and so on, uh, we don't exactly know. We, we don't know enough about them. With uh, orcas, the, the males are larger and stronger, but the females are definitely in charge and the males don't live long without moms. Okay. So basically if mom dies, the male doesn't tend to last much longer than a year. It's, it's oh, that's very similar to the bonobos. The, 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 um, in the bonobos, the males are very dependent. The sons are very dependent on their mothers. They always try to keep their mother nearby or they stay close to her because they get into trouble with females. The mother is going to help them. And their rank order is dependent on their mothers. If, if their mother is high ranking, they're going to be high ranking. And if their mother dies, they may have trouble. There was recently a study that came out which showed that sons of mothers who are still alive when they are adult have three times more offspring than sons without their mothers around. So they, they cannot even, they have wow. trouble mating with females. They, they, they cannot even have access to females if their mother is not around. Now, I read that you said that the bonobo may have the most empathic brain of all hominids. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the bonobo, the, well, the, the brain study, it was one brain study that showed that bonobos have more connections related to affiliative behavior, to affectionate behavior. Um, but the bonobo is a very empathic character in the sense that they have very little violence compared to the chimpanzee. Chimpanzees kill each other on occasion, not only between groups, but sometimes also within the group, which bonobos have never been observed to do. And so bonobos are a more peaceful species and they use sex to resolve a lot of their issues. As soon as there's tensions between two individuals, instead of killing each other, they have sex with each other and that dissolves a lot of these problems. And I understand that dolphins are like that. I don't know if orcas are like that, uh, oh, that, yes. that sex is used to, to resolve some issues between them. I don't know if sex is used to resolve issues between them. Uh, I do know that with one exception, there's been, no one has ever seen orcas harming each other in the wild. Oh. So, and that even when uh, different ecotypes meet, there's been one collision that where the Southern residents took on some big orcas and the scientists think it was because they got a little too close to a baby. Okay. But there's no evidence that orcas ever beat up on each other or ever have physical altercations with each other. Yeah, so we have that same difference between chimps and bonobos. The, the, the chimpanzees, they're hostile to their neighbors. There's only different degrees of hostility. Sometimes they kill their neighbors, sometimes they are just hostile. Uh, bonobos, they mix with their neighbors. They, they, when, when two neighboring groups meet, there's a lot of back and forth, especially by the males. The, the males are hostile, um, but they never get to the point of attacking each other or killing each other because the females want to be together. And so the females mix with each other. 
And they groom each other, they have sex with each other, the kids start playing with each other, and before you know it, it looks more like a picnic than like the warfare between them. And, and that's the bonobo way of resolving this. And the chimpanzees, they're very hostile to, to their neighbors. What do you think makes that society so unique? What do you, what do you think makes bonobos so well, there's, many, there's many speculations about that, and, and people have looked at the, at the ecology. They say the chimpanzees have, they have competition with gorillas, which the, the bonobos don't have gorillas in their area, and that um, the bonobos live in a richer environment. But I've never seen these ecology explanations uh, really take off and explain everything. So I don't know what the exact reason is that this went this way. Now, I'm curious, where do you find the most resistance to your work? Because I listen to your stuff and it just all makes sense to me. I read your work and it makes sense to me. But again, I'm not coming from a science background. I'm coming from a journalist background. And I'm wondering where you find the most pushback to your theories. Well, the most pushback comes from, comes from people outside of primatology. So, so the primatologist, when I wrote my first book, Chimpanzee Politics, which is about the, the power politics of male chimpanzees, I thought I would get attacked because I was talking about strategies and planning and power relationships. So, so the pushback, um, most of it came from outside of primatology. The primatologist, when I wrote my first book, Chimpanzee Politics, I was very young and I thought I would, get, I would get attacked for it because I talked about strategies and power and all of this and compared it with human politics to some degree. Uh, no, the, the primatologists had not a lot of trouble with that, I think, because they had seen similar things. It, it came from the people who work in labs with rats and pigeons, the, the Skinnerians, who have a very simplistic view of animals. And, and they didn't like um, the comparisons. So, so, so that's one group that, that would object to it. And then there was maybe also other groups who, who consider humans as really special. And um, they can't stand, of course, if you say humans are not that special. And that has been consistently, my message has been, humans are animals and not everyone is happy with that. Now, have you, I, I couldn't find anything about this with you. Have, do you have any, thoughts on personhood for animals? Yeah, personhood is a term, I try to stay away from legalistic approaches. I'm not a jurist and so uh, the rights of animals and the personhood of animals and I, I just, I'm much more an animal welfareist in the sense that I think we need, we have a responsibility to treat animals as well as we can especially animals in our care, such as animals in, in zoos and in laboratories, but especially animals in the agricultural industry, which are the, that's where the big numbers are. The big numbers are not in zoos. The big numbers are in, in agriculture. That's where we have a responsibility to treat them well. So I'm much more of the obligations that we have to animals, especially animals in our care, um, than the rights of animals or the personhood of animals. Because I, I don't know exactly what to do with personhood. As a scientist, I'm always looking for definitions. And, and, and so uh, I don't know what that is, personhood, personally. Yeah, I've just wondered about it as a legal means to, I mean, I know it's mostly used regarding animals in captivity. I've wondered about rights in regards to animals in the wild, because that way you have to protect habitat. 
Yeah, but rights of animals in the wild is also a problem. Your killer whales, they kill animals. They eat animals. So, so you're going to worry about the rights of those animals too? Or are you killer whales have all the rights and, and the others don't have any rights? If, if we start to look at the natural world in terms of rights, there's a lot of trouble that we're going to have. Uh, and, and so some, some philosopher, and this was a very extreme position, said he was actually against predators um, because predators violate the rights of lots of animals. But if we take the predators out of nature, yeah, you can forget about the whole system. It's going to collapse, of course. Gotcha. Now, can you talk about how you got into all of this world in the first place? I gather you've always had a passion for animals. And like, did you spend time at your grandfather's pet store? Was there something there? Was there a moment? No, I don't think my grandfather was actually very fond of animals. I think he, uh, he just, he saw that as a business. My mother was more fond of animals, I think. Um, but um, I've always had animals. I, I, I'm from a big family and I was the only one who collected animals and tried to keep them. And I started with fish. I still, I still as you see, I still have fish. Uh, I started with fish and frogs and salamanders and then later birds and uh, and mice and all of that. And so uh, I, I built my own little zoo, so to speak. So I was always attracted to animals. And that's how I went to biology to study animal behavior at some point. But, but the first years as a student, a uh, biology student, I was very unhappy with the fields because all I saw was dead animals. What they wanted me to do is cut open dead animals and, and analyze them or, or collect plants and uh, systematize them. And that was really not what I was into. And so later in my career, I found animal behavior, which is really the thing that I'm interested in. It's funny. I liked science as a kid. And then we hit science in high school and it was dissecting dead things. And I said, I didn't want to do that. And I just dropped sciences. Oh, yeah, that's very radical. So, so yeah, we, we had animals in formaldehyde. Well, if you know the smell of formaldehyde, that's really... It's a real turn off, I would say. Uh, so so I, I'm, I'm, I, lo I love drawing. And so that was the thing that I really liked about it is to draw these animals. So, but the drawing part was not why I was studying biology, of course. I've, I read that you had a really boring biology teacher who almost scared you out of biology. I had a biology teacher at high school who uh, was very fond of the citrus cycle, which is one of the most boring things you can imagine which is a chemical process. And, and he, that's what he had written his dissertation on, I believe. And he, he gave class after class after class about that. And I got so totally bored. I got into conflicts with him because I was not paying attention. And uh, yeah, so he, we had, a, we had a, a bad relationship. And as a result, as a student, I thought I'm not gonna study biology. Uh, and, and so I wanted to study something else like physics, but I think I would have been bored to death by physics. Uh, and it's my mom who said, no, no, you've always had animals. You have to go into biology. So, so that she pushed me in the right direction, I think. Nice. Are, were there any books or stories or movies or anything like that that inspired your, your love of animals or your work? Yeah, I had one book. Um, with, with gravures in it, so, so sort of drawings. Gravure is an old way of making drawings. And so I had one book with all the animals that you could encounter in the Netherlands. I lived in Holland. 
uh, all the animals you could encounter and, and their lifestyle and how they lived and how long they live and how they make their nest and so on. And that was, that was my Bible, basically. That was the book I always resorted to. And, and, but it was very limited. I didn't have a big encyclopedia. And nowadays, of course, kids have the internet. You can look up your animal on the internet. You find pictures and movies and all sorts of things. I didn't have that. I, I had to discover a lot of things by myself. And I spent a lot of time as a kid watching my animals. The funny thing is that we had sticklebacks. And sticklebacks are little fish. You have them also, I think, in, in, um, in Western United States. You have them also, sticklebacks. So you had these stickleback fish. And I had them in a tank. And they started breeding. They, they started doing courtship and building a nest and breeding. It's a very complex uh, courtship that they have. And so when I went to, to the university as a student, when I was much older, uh, I was in, and this was for me a, a revelation. I, I went into a class and a professor spoke about the stickleback. The stickleback was apparently, and I didn't know that, was a, a hot item in etology, the field of animal behavior, and had been studied to death by a lot of scientists. And so this professor explained everything that the stickleback did and how important it was and so on. And for me, that was a real revelation is that the behavior that I knew, because I knew everything firsthand, I had seen everything that he described, that that could be studied as a science, that you could be, that could be your profession is watching the stickleback fish. And so the, for me, that was, that was a real revelation that was very important for my uh, future career, because that's where I decided that I needed to get into that direction. What is it that makes the stickleback so interesting? Well, like some fish, like cichlids also, they are they are they have in pairs and and the male colors up and the male needs to court a female the, the male needs to lead the female to his nest he builds a nest and drive her through the nest she leaves her eggs behind he immediately fertilizes the eggs and then the male starts to guard the eggs and to uh, wave water at them uh, to oxy oxygenate them so so there's a lot of parental care paternal care in this case the female actually does very little for the young. It's the male who does all the work. And uh, so it's a very complex uh, courtship and breeding behavior. Uh, and you see that sometimes also in the cichlid fish, the cichlid fish, which I often have, uh, you have males or females who keep the young in their mouths. So they're, they're called mouse breeders. And they, the male may have like 30 little young in his mouth and he swims around like that and he doesn't eat all that time. And then at some point he spoos them out and they, and they, they are free. Now, how did you end up working with apes? Was there a moment that you fell for them? Or were with um, chimps? Like yeah, with chimps, uh, I, I, was, I was a student and I needed a job at some point. I needed to make some money. And so I went to a psychology lab. I was a biology student. I went to a psychologist and they had a job available. And to my surprise, I wasn't counting on that. To my surprise, it was with two chimpanzees. They had two chimpanzees in, this is really weird. We, we wouldn't do that anymore. It was, it was just office buildings with lots of professors and students and whatever. And in the middle, they had a room with a cage with two chimpanzees. And these chimpanzees sometimes escaped and then messed up the whole floor where these people lived. Um, but anyway, these two chimps, young chimps, four and five years old, which is really very young. A chimp is adult when they're 16 or something. So, so four or five year old chimps, and uh, I was supposed to work with them and do very, very simple experiments with them. This was the time where all these skinnerians 
had very simplistic views of animals. Uh, as, as we talked about, animals are machines. And so they had developed tests for these chimps that were completely below their level. You know, a, a rat presses a lever and gets food. That's sort of the level they wanted to, these chimps to work on. And the chimps got completely bored by the task. And if, if I did 10 trials with them, I was supposed to do like a thousand. If I did 10 trials with them, they were already bored. And they showed me in the first 10 trials that they knew exactly what to do. And then they started making errors uh, in order to distract me. And so that I started talking to them and so on. And they actually wanted to play with me. So they, they did everything to get me to play with them. And so I spent a lot of time playing with them, which they liked a lot better than their task. And that's how I got to know chimpanzees. And so when later, much later, like five years later, as a student, someone asked, we have a job, you could work with chimpanzees. I was immediately for it because I knew chimpanzees and I really, really like them. They're very smart. They're very human-like, of course. The only problem is those two young males was that they were stronger than me. So I could play with them, but they were already at that very young age, they had more physical strengths than me. And, and so it was sometimes funny because they would put me in a knot and I wouldn't know how to get out of that. And I would, I would yell at them and they would come looking at me and they were, as if they were very surprised how weak this human being was that, that I screamed uh, from pain, because basically. So they were, they were already at that time stronger than me and I could not really dominate them, which was a problem because I was supposed to dominate them, but I couldn't. <laughs> that was one of the things that stood out for me uh, reading Mama's Last Hug was I'd never really thought about the fact that you're dealing with animals that are so much stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so when you're going in with them, the, the amount of trust and faith you have to have if you're actually walking in with these. With these yeah, what you do with, with, when you cannot dominate them, because they're also... Uh, there are animals who are stronger than you and you can dominate them, like a big dog, a big dog that you have raised. Of course, you, 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 hopefully you stay dominant over that dog. That's a good thing to do. Uh, but with chimps, that's an impossibility because they test everything out. They're not like a dog. They're not, they're not obedient like a dog. They, they, they will test you out always. Yeah, and and they, there's always pushback. If you try to dominate them, they're going to push back at you. And so you cannot dominate them by physical strength or intimidation or bluff. No, that's not going to work. So the only way to handle them is to be friends with them. So if they like you and you play with them and, and you're good friends, they have no reason to beat you up or to make your life difficult because you're friends. And so that, that has always been my approach. I've known many in zoos, I've known many, um, the, most of the caretakers of apes nowadays are, are women, but I've known male caretakers who could not handle the apes because they tried to dominate them and, and the apes just don't take that very well. They, they, they don't like people who try to dominate them. And so they, um, they will find ways of getting back at you. And so the, the only way for a man, but I think also for a woman to get along with these apes is to be friends with them. And, and that's very easy to do because we have the same gestures and the same expressions and you, you just play with them and you're, you're, you're friends with them and it's, it goes okay. Can you tell me just a little bit about communication? And I know that one of the words that everybody goes nowhere near is language. Do you mm -hmm. feel any of, any of the animals that you've met have a language? The, the word that uh, orca scientists go to is dialect. Uh-huh. And- well, the, term, the term dialect? 
comes out of bird work and, and all the, the birds, we know that, that that has been known for a long time is that they have dialects, the, the songbirds, they, le they learn their songs from each other and, and different regions, the same species in different regions sing, sing somewhat differently. We call that dialects. So dialect doesn't necessarily mean language. Dialect is just a, a, a different vocal repertoire, basically. Uh, language is, is learned symbolic communication. Learned is important because we, we now speak English, but there are people who speak Chinese and people who speak Spanish. And so, so the, the symbolic communication of this group is different from that group. And you have to learn that when you're a kid. And you're very good at learning that as a kid. You, you have a lot of trouble learning that later in life. So anyone who tries to learn a second language will notice that that's a difficult thing when you're a bit older. So we are pre-programmed basically as a species to learn language at a very young age. And we are very good at absorbing a language. Uh, and, and the learned symbolic communication that we have, I think, is, is unique. We don't have evidence for, let's say, orcas and dolphins that it's a symbolic communication. We have evidence for a very complex communication, that's for sure, and very variable, and also locally variable. We have all that evidence, but it's not symbolic, I think, unless, unless I'm mistaken on that. Is there any symbolic, is there any sense that uh, any of the apes have symbolic communication? No, people have sometimes speculated about that um, because they drum sometimes and uh, no, and they have gestures, of course, but none of that is symbolic, I think. Yeah. Because that's, I guess what I get lost in is that they're clearly communicating with each other. Oh yeah. So, you know, they're understanding each other. So where's, I, I guess, what makes that distinct from what we're doing? If they're getting across, like they're communicating, they're sharing their yeah. thoughts, they're share, or they're sharing their wants and needs. Well, there is a difference with what we do. For example, uh, a chimpanzee who gets beaten up by another chimpanzee and um, meets his friend, he cannot explain what happened. He, he cannot say, X beat me up yesterday for these and these reasons under these and these circumstances. He cannot explain that. The chimp cannot communicate about things that are not present. Things have to, they can communicate very sophisticatedly about things that are around them or things that have happened in the very recent past or are gonna happen in the very recent future. Um, in the immediate future, but talking about something that happened yesterday or talking about something that is far away and not visible is difficult. Now, there are animals, that, that's the funny thing with language, is that many aspects of language can be found in some animals, like bees, honeybees, can communicate about sources of food that are not visible, that, that are outside, maybe a mile away. They, they can communicate about that. Um, so, so there are animals who can do some of these things that we do with language, but the whole package of language, of symbolic communication, they don't have. Um, I'm curious, I gather you've got cats. Have you learned anything from your cats? We don't have cats anymore, but I've always had, all my life I've had cats. Cats are, are interesting. Cats are often described as asocial by people. And, and I think it's maybe dog owners who say that kind of things like 
that cats are not very social creatures. I consider cats extremely social, but they don't express it in the, in the open uh, lick your face type uh, way of the dog, you know. So, but, but cats are very social beings, I think, and, very, and keep track of everything that is going on around them. I've always liked cats. Um, yeah, but, um, and at home I've never had primates. No, I've, I've never had, I've always had domesticated animals, basically. Okay. Uh, are, now, I thought I'd read that you were working on a book with the Dalai Lama? No, I, I, I've met the Dalai Lama a few times and, and I've explained my view of empathy to him. Uh, one interesting discussion I had with him is that I mentioned empathy and he brought up the turtle. He said, does the turtle have empathy? And I think because for for someone like him, the turtle is a very important animal because the world is built on top of the turtle. You know, that's the, that's the traditional Buddhist view of that. So he felt the turtle was important, but I don't think uh, reptiles are the greatest examples of empathy. But anyway, he, um, he, he asked that question. But I think empathy is found in all the mammals. So all the mammals, if you, if you define empathy as being sensitive to the emotions of somebody else, and, and caring about the situation and the emotions of somebody else, uh, then empathy is found in all the mammals. And, and so your orcas, I'm sure, have also empathy for each other. Well, I know you've also written a little bit about whales and gratitude and whales expressing gratitude. Yeah, there, there are examples of that. And I, I recently saw again one, I believe, of, of whales that are liberated by divers from nets or something uh, or fishing lines. And then uh, before they swim off, they return to these people. Uh, and and, and the, the people who, the divers then interpret that as an, as an act of gratitude because they could have swum away without any, any contact, but they make contact with the people who liberated them. So, so that's very interesting. I think gratitude is very interesting emotion that you can see in, in pets sometimes, pets that you rescue, for example, so you may see that. Or uh, in chimpanzees, I've seen that the chimpanzees keep, keep favors in mind, uh, favors that they have done for each other, and repay those favors, so reciprocity. And, and that requires also uh, gratitude, I believe. Well, one of the things that has fascinated me learning about more whales, the number of times that a whale will surface next to something and go out of their way to avoid harming a human. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a humpback fly out of the fly out of the water, and it's going towards a kayak, and it torques its body in some impossible position to avoid harming someone. Paul Watson talked about that happening with him when a, mm -hmm. a whale was harpooned and was coming right towards him, and the it twisted out of the the whale he twisted out of the way to avoid harming people. Was harpooned? Yeah, it was a harpooned whale. It was early on in his work with Greenpeace. <laughs> and uh but i mean that seems to have come up a lot is whales going out of their way to avoid hurting people mm -hmm. so you know i it goes back to you know it makes me think about some of your work with empathy where the animals are going i get that this is you know i'm looking after you too yeah i think um i also always hear that orcas never attack people is that true there is no evidence of an orca ever attacking a human 
in the wild. Even though humans would make a good snack, I suppose, for them, no? I guess. Yeah, the mammal-eating orcas have, have, eaten, have tried quite a few different things, but not us. Why so. would that be? Why would that be? They, they sometimes say that about wolves also, is that wolves could attack humans. And of course, they sometimes have done that, but it's extremely rare. As if the wolves have put in their head, like, this is the sort of species we're not going to go attack. Do they think that they're going to get in trouble? Is it, is it uh, danger avoidance? Or is it something else that makes them avoid the human as a, as a, as a prey item? There's a scientist I've spoken to a lot, Lance Barrett Leonard out of uh, Vancouver. He's, he assumes it's cultural that the orcas only eat what mom taught them to eat, and we've never been on the menu. But oh. somewhere they must have decided we're not a good menu item because yeah. we do show up. You know, we, we do show up in the water. And well, well with, with the wolves, you can imagine that if a wolf ever attacks a human, then humans are going to come out with their guns and all of this. And so they may have learned and, and passed on information about humans are a dangerous animal to attack. But the orcas don't have that kind of experience, I would think, no? I don't, I mean, they've had bad experiences with us, but again, there's, there's nothing. And I mean, I've been looking, when I was doing my work, I basically cast as broad a net as possible and went and looked historically and nothing. There's, hmm. there's nothing that pops up. And they'll kill other whales, they'll kill seals, sea lions, Mm -hmm. There are stories of them hunting. There are stories of them taking out, out moose and deer who are and horses that are waiting across the water, but nothing with humans. That's interesting. They will take a horse, but not a human. Yeah, I mean these are rare, but there are stories of them taking out, taking out these mammals that are stuck in the water. And yeah, and, and that's not that's not a traditional item either. I would think a horse. No. Uh, yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's like horse, moose. Some of the, there are some strange things that have shown up on their menus, and of course, other whales. Thank you again, and thank you for all that you're doing and all of your work. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Take care. Have a great Bye. night. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Joshua Zeman, director of The Loneliest Whale in the World, The Story of Blue 52, Nadine Pequeniza, director of Last of the Right Whales, and some very special interviews about sharks to get you ready for the launch of my new book for readers of all ages, Sharks Forever, The Mystery and History of the Planet's Perfect Predator, and my new shark baby book, Big Sharks, Small World. If you want to help us share more stories about oceans, ecoethics, the environment, whales, and sharks, please join our pod at patreon.com. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuta, Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Lern Young, Philip Ashdown, Mike Whitley, Christina, Howard Siegel, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of all of my books about whales and sharks for younger readers, and of course, our friends at Eagle Wing. Be sure to check out our show notes at scanna.org and subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium, which features excerpts from books from several of our recent guests, including Paul Watson, Alexandra Morton, and Linda V. Mapes. Please follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Heck, 
Share it with absolutely everyone you know. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm John Stewart, and this is The Problem with John Stewart. This podcast is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Saanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, audio engineering by Rain Banu and Isabella Almashi. The Scanna site and much more are courtesy of our wonderful Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Huh?